0: Is it live? Live. Man. Okay. So there's a few things that we've been talking about, some concepts that we've been building on. Remember once we've been talking about apologetics, the goal of apologetics really is for us to uh, lay hold of, set our anchors in our ultimate authority. That we, we, we spoke earlier, a couple weeks ago, about the, the fact that there's no such thing as neutral. Jesus said in the word, you're either for me or against me. One side or the other of the fence, there's no standing on the fence being in the middle. Um, So we want to recognize, we want to be uh, standing on our ultimate uh, uh, authority. We talk about the source of that ultimate authority, used a couple of Latin terms, principium ascendai, the, the principle of being. Which is the source of all knowledge. The only way that we can know anything on earth is because God has revealed it. So he is that ultimate source, and he had to condescend to reveal himself to us. We weren't going to find him. He finds he he reaches down to mankind on earth, right? John three: sixteen tells God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Adam and Eve and creation, and all the stuff that God did is God condescending to his creation, revealing himself to his creation. And one of the principal ways, I'm not going to say the only way, because we know that there are things in scripture called theophany and Christophanies where God appeared in human form. But one of the principal ways that God has revealed himself is through his word. And so that is our principium cognoscendi The source of our knowledge is the word of God. And when we take these things into consideration, okay, in the broad terms, we're looking at apologetics, okay, and, and we're gonna talk, we're talking for our next pride. I was hoping it's gonna be two weeks, it's looking like three weeks now. Uh, we're gonna be talking about the doctrine of the Scripture. So tonight we're gonna discuss the canon. I'm gonna try to wrap up the concept of the canon next week. The following week we're gonna talk about textual criticism, and hopefully in the, in those three topics we we will have covered. Basically, the the doctrine of of Scripture. Now if, I just want you to think for a moment, if God condescended and He gave to us revelation, and that revelation, the way that we can know God and understand God and grow in knowledge and truth is through the Word of God, then where do you think the enemy is going to attack? So is that not the, the normal place where we see attacks coming from the Word? Satan, when he's coming to Eve, what's the first thing he does? Hath God said, right? Did God really tell you this? So it's the word of God that comes under attack. Now, as we look at it, just just what we're going to talk about tonight is some of the concepts about the canon. And part of the problem when we discuss the canon is we have a tendency to make assumptions. So let me, if if there's something I talk about, you you guys are like, what are you talking about? Ask me, because we're probably not going to have any discussion time tonight except for whatever questions you ask. So if you have a question... Throw up a hand or holler or ask. The word canon simply means rule or standard. So when we talk about the canon of scripture, we're talking about the rule or standard of the word of God. And when we talk specifically about, about canon, typically we're asking the question, there are 66 books penned by 40 different authors over roughly between 1500 and 2000 year period of time, do we have the right 66 books? Are we missing some? How do we know they're the right books? How do we know that what we're holding is the Word of God? That's the concept of canon. The rule. The standard. How do we know that what we have is is what we need and, and how do we get there? And in order to do that, we've got to understand a few of, uh, of some, some of the other schools of thought. And I'm going to encourage you guys I told you about two weeks ago maybe last week I forget. I told you that what I like is a what's called the self-authenticating model of canon, which, which in in short, it, this is a too simple of a definition. Okay, so you're you're going to think it's all subjective and there's no objectivity in it, but but in essence, it is that the scriptures they authenticate themselves. Now, I, I want to. It's going to take me a while to describe what I mean by that. So, kind of bear. With me as we work our way through some of the concepts of it, but there's a reason behind that. Look, if my fundamental ultimate authority is going to be the Word of God, that God has revealed Himself through His Word, then that ultimate authority, as with all ultimate authorities, are self authenticating. If you were to talk to somebody and you're asking them about their ability to reason, well, in the, in the discussion, as you discuss their reasoning, what are they going to use to decide whether or not they're reasoning properly? Reason. They're going to use their reasoning. It's, it is at the base, at the ultimate level, okay, where your ultimate authority is, at the ultimate level things are circular, but they are not viciously circular. So when you get to the bottom line, all arguments become circular. There's no way around circular. If I was to tell you God is my ultimate authority, then when I get to the bottom line, why why am I going to say this is wrong? Because what? God said. So I'm circular. When we get to that point, so we want to stay away from vicious circularity. We want to stay away from fallacious arguments, right? But, But we need to understand... At the ultimate level, at the base, at the bottom of it all, everyone, if for an atheist, their ultimate authority is the universe. What are they going to say? They're going to they're gonna point to the universe, say the universe doesn't care. Blind, pitiless, indifference. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. English is not my first language. What is v- vicious circularity? So when I say vicious circularity, it is any circularity apart from that which is extended toward your ultimate. So if I... If I get circular and I say, so vicious circularity would be um, what we do to our kids sometimes. (laughs) Uh, I told you, don't do that. Why can't I do that? Because I said so. Now, I don't mean that you shouldn't do that to your kids, but the idea, if you and I were having a discussion, okay, you're not my child, and I use that argument, that's vicious circularity. That's not a reason not to do something or not a reason to listen to you. It's just... You're not giving me anything to work with or work off of. It's just vicious circularity. We're not going to get anywhere. So circularity can happen when we're talking about ultimates. It happens for everybody. You'll see it as you when you begin to talk to people. That's how you'll know you've gotten to their bottom. The, the reasoning will start to go in a circle. You get what I mean? No further to go. That's yeah. I'm at the bottom. It has to go. It has to go around. <clears throat> so. Let's uh, let's talk about defining the canon. There's several ways to define the concept of canon. So I'm going to read you I'm going to read you three <coughs> ideas of definition, and then I'm going to say we should use them all, and hopefully explain why, and and then keep going. So that's my goal. Let's see how it works out. Okay, first, canon defined. Exclusive definition. This is this is a definition usually uh, reserved by uh, your modern uh, scholars, the guys you know who critics of of the canon or Bible or study and that kind of stuff. It's called the exclusive definition. The exclusive definition says canon exists and only exists when we have a closed, final, fixed list of books to which nothing can be added. Into which nothing can be taken away. That definition has been around since about 1968, and it was introduced by a man named Sunberg. <clears throat> so, um, kind of by way of describing, by the beginning of the canon, <clears throat> um, the idea is. In order for us to say it's canonized, that's why today when you talk to somebody, they will say, well, the earliest date we have for a canonization of the scripture is about in the 4th century, 4th to 5th century. That's the number, 4th or 5th century, because that's when the church agreed on 66 books. But there's, there's, there's a couple of implications, okay? a couple of implications that come or work off of. <coughs> Excuse me, that work off of that definition. Yes, sir. When you say
1: that 66 books, then that, that was during Catholicism, wasn't it though? Yeah. And so there was more than 66 books at that point canonized. Well,
0: initially they canonized, in the 4th and 5th century, they canonized 66. At the Protestant Reformation, they added. Okay. But part of the addition, keep in mind, is because you're dealing... Um, well, Okay, let me back up. One of the reasons I want to hold the self-authenticating concept of Scripture is so that nothing has authority over the Scripture. If Scripture is self-authenticating, then the Scripture has authority over itself. You guys with me? If I say the church has authority over Scripture, then you have what happened at the Protestant Reformation. Okay, you have the church saying, these are the books, and then later on the church saying, we're going to add these books too, and uh, admittedly later on they could do it again, and again, right? Because... The authority over the Scripture is the Church, which means that my my ultimate authority has changed. It can't be the Scripture because Scripture is not an ultimate authority. If something has authority over it, you guys with me? So that's that's part of one of the issues sometimes with canon. So let me give you a couple implications. Okay, it means fourth or fifth century is when we have a canon, uh, which is, this is the the discussion that's currently used by Critical Scholarship today. It, uh, it means that canonization was a late ecclesiastic development. Okay, so when I say late ecclesiastic development, I mean it was a late development that was orchestrated by the church and was never the original intent of the authors of the book. The problem is I don't know that I can buy that because... Scripture won't let me. You guys with me? So when I look at the critical discussion in regard to canon, the books of the Bible, they say 4th or 5th century and it was a construct by the church. You guys probably have heard this story. I've told this story before. Uh, somewhere around the, the 4th century, Constantine comes to power and then Constantine is look around he gets saved, right? He has his salvific experience. Whether or not it's true doesn't make any difference to the story. Um, He goes around conquering with a shield. Remember with the cross on the shield. In this sign you will conquer. And he notices all the infighting in the church. And so he gathers together the church into a council. And he tells the church we need to get our act together and we need to get these books put together. So the church council comes together, takes a look at this huge expanse which by the way, not as big as they might make it sound. But anyway, this huge expanse of all of these books and the church decided, as they looked at it, they took votes, men gathered together, and that's how they came up with the council. So it was something that was forced onto the books, not something the books were in and of themselves. Okay, so in that regard, I believe the exclusive definition that you can't have a canon... Unless it's all fixed, final, and everyone agrees. I don't, I don't think, I think there's a, several weak things, weaknesses in it. But before I look at the weaknesses, look at the strength. What does it really show us? The strengths of this view is it does capture the canon's fluid edges prior to the 4th century. What do I mean? There were... And you, we, we as church can't hide from it. There were a lot of discussions about a few of the books in the Bible, whether or not they should go in. But what I want us to remember is that that's not the majority of the books. It's a few. A handful. The four Gospels. All of the Pauline Epistles and Revelation were always accepted by the early church. That was part of what they, people would call the, the early canon. Okay, and then there was discussion about things on the outside. So when I say there, that it shows us the fluidity, it took a while for us to settle all the books. Okay, that did take time. But though that took time, I want you to also realize that some of them were never up for negotiation, and were always part of setting the early creeds in Christendom as the church continued to grow. <clears throat> so, the strength it shows us that fluidity, okay, the, the edges, the things within the scripture that took a while to, to come into concrete. And it does remind us of an important role that the church plays in recognizing and accepting the canon. But I want to be careful about that. It's okay for the church to recognize, okay? It's okay for the church to recognize canon. It's okay for the church uh, <clears throat> to to accept or affirm. What I don't want to say is that the church has authority over it, to it. right? For just like this, someone feels a call by the Holy Spirit to go into the, to the mission field or to be a pastor. or or to to be involved in ministry. And that person within church government, what he ought to do is go before the elders, and the elders will uh, either affirm or confirm what the Holy Spirit has already laid on that person's heart. What the elders don't have the right to do is come to somebody and say, God is saying, you need to go there. Because now I'm saying as an elder, I have authority over... God's own or the Holy Spirit's own authority in his life. He can come to me and say, I feel called to do this. And I can say, I don't see that. That doesn't negate what God's laid on his heart. I'm just saying, I don't see that that's, that's what's accurately there. That's a role that the church can play. When we talk about the defining of the canon, the building of the Bible, the scripture, the 66 books. That's good that the church is a part of that. That the church can say... Yeah, look at this. Got the fingerprints of God all over it, and we'll talk about what those fingerprints are in a minute. So that part's good, okay? <clears throat> but the weakness that it has—that it cannot—it makes what a, it makes a scripture canon distinction, okay? It says that when John wrote the Gospel of John, when he finishes the last word, puts the last period. Whatever he finishes writing, it's scripture, but it's not canon. It's scripture when he finishes writing it, but it's only canon when the church confirms it. And I don't think you can make that distinction between scripture and canon. For example, we went to an early Christian's house, he had the different parts of the Bible up on his bookshelf. He also had other things, other people's books on his bookshelf. Could he have gone up to his bookshelf and said, look, this is Scripture. This is the Gospel according to Matthew. And opened that up. And could he have shown you a book that wasn't Scripture? Sure he could. Why wouldn't he be able to do that? He's using them. He's got them. He knows which ones are authoritative. And that, uh, uh, that level of authority in Scripture is exactly what canon is. Canon means this is the rule, this is the standard, this is the authority. You guys with me? So to make that distinction, that distinction between scripture and canon, saying that it has to wait until the church puts their stamp on it, um, it means that you don't really have a canon, a rule, an authority until the 4th or 5th century. Is that really what we see? What about the patristic writings, early church fathers, when they write Were they writing with authority? Were they pointing to the authority of Scripture? Absolutely. We're we're going to talk about it in a minute. That's the first century. So you have the canon not set in concrete, but you have it it available, I believe, right out the gate, right in the beginning. So we don't want to make that distinction between Scripture uh, and canon. Uh, The next thing, the next problem, what exactly constitutes the closing of a canon? Is it absolute uniform agreement across all of Christendom? Because if that's the case, you have not got a canon today. Because everybody in Christendom does not agree. The Syrian Church has a different canon than, than we have. There are differences uh, across the board. So does that mean there is no canon today? Does it mean the close the canon's close when you have an official ecclesiastical pronouncement by the universal church? What's another word for universal? Catholic. <laughs> so, is it the pronouncement by the Catholic Church? That's where most people go by now. That's where they get the fourth and fifth century from, that it was the proclamation from the Catholic Church. Um, we don't have those things anymore. So, so the, it's, they, they, they ne- the point is that part's not defined, it just says <clears throat> it's not a canon until everybody agrees. So I, I think those are, those are some of the weaknesses. Is there something special about the 4th century and the church in the 4th century that they had more authority flowing through the church in the 4th century than they had in the 1st century? When you have the early church for polycarp who's a disciple of John who's walking around as a bishop of Smyrna and he's doing the stuff that he's doing reaching out with the gospel that he had less authority than they had in the 4th century. No, of course he didn't. So, the 4th century becomes an arbitrary mark where we can point to a council, but it's not the mark where we can say that's where the Bible began to be authoritative. Because the scripture was authoritative as soon as Paul finished and sent it up, right? And churches began to read it and take a look at what it, what it said. Okay, d- definition number two. <clears throat> wow. Second definition, functional definition. Okay, we have the exclusive definition, functional definition. You have a canon when the books function as scripture within the church. So as soon as the books are functioning as scripture within the church, you have a canon. That moves the canon from 4th or 5th century to the 2nd century. So it, it effectively moves it up. And there are several strengths associated with with the functional uh, definition of the canon. It accurately captures the historic reality that the early church possessed an authoritative corpus of books. The early church had books. They hadn't had them totally organized like we have them today, but they had most of them put together, as many as 22 of the 27 New Testament books. In, before the first century were already put together in corpuses, already put together in books. They were gathered together in one book sometimes. So <clears throat> do, we, do we know which five were added after the twenty two uh, the primary issues are second and third John Second uh, Peter maybe third second uh, Peter first second and third John Second Peter Jude and James I think were the were the five floating out, working out, issues, books. Sometimes it rotated, though, depending on what was going on. Is
1: Hebrews in that mix, too? Hebrews was
0: actually in some of the earliest uh, codexes that they put together. And it was listed in the codexes that were built up of primarily Pauline books, which is interesting. Yeah. So even the early guys put Hebrews with Paul, okay. even though it never says it's written by him. Yeah. And nor does that mean we can say that, Absolutely. But it's a fun part to argue about, right? But surprisingly, Hebrews was was actually pretty early. Later on, when they started struggling over the concept of authorship, that's when Hebrews, they started to ask questions about Hebrews. But prior to that, they didn't. <clears throat> they accepted it uh, on the basis of its authority and, and what it was doing and what it was saying. Um, okay, So so basically, strengths are, I've got, <laughs> like, 20 different places where the patristic the early church fathers are quoting scriptures uh, in the first uh, late first early 2nd century they quote 1 Timothy 5:18 2 Peter 3:16 um, they're using all throughout the didache if you guys know anything about the didache the didache is uh, called the teaching it was a book called like the teaching of the apostles um, it's apocryphal. It's not in scripture, but it quotes a lot of the scripture in the Didache, which it, the Didache is written somewhere between 70 A.D. and 150. So it puts it real early in, in terms of times of the church. You have uh, <coughs> quotations of Deuteronomy in the epistle of, of Barnabas, which is an apocryphal book. You have Ignatius ninety eight quoting from the New and Old Testament. Uh, Balisides in 125-150. Polycarp in Smyrna uh, around 150. Um, Clement in 150, uh, among others. So you got a lot of early church fathers, beginning of the 2nd century, quoting from the Bible. Using it authoritatively. Calling it scripture. Saying these are the things that we need to be obeying. So the idea is if the early church fathers were doing that, they were already by that time treating it as authoritative. Right? They're already using it and treating it as authoritative. The weakness of this idea is it fails to account for books that were used by the early Christian community but didn't make the cut. One of the most uh used apocryphal books that's not in the Bible by the early church fathers is called the Shepherd of Hermas. And the functional definition can't account for why it's not in. That's a weakness. It, it can't account for, well, if these guys used it, if they were using it, then how come it's not in? Which is an argument people would make. Why, why didn't that make the cut? Why, why isn't it in there? So that's one of the weaknesses. It fails to address the ontology. The ontology or what is the canon in reality? What is it really? What is the being of the canon? We've got an idea. Okay, the canon is when the whole church agrees. Or the canon is when the early church fathers start quoting it. But both of those tell us about ways the canon's being used. But they don't tell us what the canon is. That kind of leads us into the, the third definition. The third definition of the canon. That's the ontological definition. The ontological definition. What I'm trying to do <clears throat> is help us see that there needs to be a multi-dimensional definition for the canon. All three teach us something about the Word of God. And all three function together. And if we have them all function together, then we have what we got. If we, if we lean all on one, that's where you're going to have people say, 5th century Bibles didn't really have any juice. There's nothing special. The writers didn't think they were writing Scripture. They are just writing letters. And somebody put those letters in a book, and now they're selling it to you as Scripture. That's not a high view of Scripture, right? So that's probably not an ultimate authority. Uh, or you have somebody saying, well, these were all these guys were talking about Scripture, but they were talking about a lot of other books, too. And really, your Bible can't be as effective unless you add all these other books in. Well, we have both of those arguments, don't we? Don't we have people that that come from those two sides? So what do I mean by the ontological definition? The ontological definition, what the canon is in reality. The authoritative books that God gave his corporate church. The authoritative books God gave his corporate church. In other words, canon, this is canon from a divine perspective rather than from the church's perspective. Books do not become canonical. They are canonical because God gave them as a permanent guide to his church. So it is the books themselves that determine not their reception or their function. What the books said. The power evident in the books. We're going to talk about a lot of the things of the ways... that you can see this in the books themselves. So we're not placing an authority over them. We're allowing the books to have that authority over themselves. The strength of this view is you have a canon in the first century. As soon as John finished the book, as soon as the last period was placed in a Pauline epistle, it was authoritative. And the reality is that's what you read when you read those epistles. You read Paul saying... This is scripture. He puts it on par with the Old Testament, with the word of the prophets, and the word of God. So we'll take a look at some of those things. So in the strength you have a canon right away. Which means that the the Bible aspects, parts of the Bible were authoritative right out of the gate. It wasn't 5th century when they became. And it wasn't that the authors didn't know what they were writing. They knew what they were writing as they were putting it together. Um, but the part of the understanding we need to have is none of these are standalone definitions we need to bring it all together we need to have a multi-dimensional uh, definition <clears throat> we want to bring them all together for example, all three of these definitions make important contributions one, the exclusive definition reminds us that the canon did not occur overnight it took a while to get all 66 books that's just the reality it took a while took to the 4th or 5th century. It took several centuries for the edges to solidify. That does not mean that we did not have a canon until then. It just wasn't finished. It wasn't accepted or didn't have the stamp of the, of the church until that point. The functional definition reminds us that prior to the determination of the final shape, the canon functioned with supreme authority in early Christian communities. So already by the beginning, middle of the 2nd century, it was authoritative just how it was. The ontological definition reminds us that these books do not just become authoritative because of the actions of the church. But they bear authority by virtue of what they are. Books given by God. All three definitions are helpful in dating. If you, the exclusive points to the fourth, the functional to the second, the ontological to the first. So taken together, what we see are the stages of canon. We see the authority beginning the moment that the authors pen it. We see the early church fathers using them with authority. We see the church affirming uh, what was, was being accomplished through the church in these books in the fourth and fifth century. So we see it coming together. So, if we look at, if we put aside the concept of definition, let's talk about origin. Okay. <clears throat> Why was there a New Testament at all? Why is there a New Testament? Is there anything that would naturally lead to the canon? Huh? Right. Where is that mentioned first? The gospel. So actually in, the Old Testament. in the Old Testament. So, the point is, is there anything in the Old Testament... That tells us there's a New Testament coming. Yeah, what where's it at? It's an important one to know. Jeremiah 31 is one of them. What is it called? New the New Covenant. The New Covenant. The Lord said, There's a day coming, right? There's a, when I'm going to pour out my spirit on all, all flesh, flesh, right? And He's going to do something. So the end. Of the Old Testament, did it beg the beginning of something else? Or did the Old Testament end of itself, and it should have been a finished and completed book and the New Testament, just something that's tacked on that doesn't fit in the story? If we look at it, the Old Testament finishes like something's coming. If you take the English version, the Old Testament ends in Malachi with a curse. Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the scripture ends. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible ends with the book of Chronicles. What happened in the end of the book of Chronicles? The Children of Israel go into captivity. Well, where were they when Christ came? They're still in captivity, ain't they? Yeah, they've come out of captivity... Let me rephrase that. They come out of captivity and they have homes back in the land, but they never have a king. Right? They never have a king again. So, and yeah, Rome Rome ultimately comes in as a result of the nation of Israel reaching out. So what do you have? We have some really neat things I, 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 that I hope I'm going to be able to express. And, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to run away <coughs> Probably okay, but the idea is: is there something when we look at the Old Testament? Is there something that says there should be a new? Is there something that talks about it? now? There's two models when we talk about this: the origin of the canon. The first model is what's called the an extrinsic model. The extrinsic means the writers of the New Testament books had no idea they were writing scripture. And the idea of a canon is foisted upon these books by the church. It was not something intended during apostolic times. And the extrinsic model of New Testament canon is where you have the concept of Constantine's Bible. Another argument for extrinsic is Marcion's heresy. Marcion's heresy, a short version of Marcion's heresy is that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New. That the God of the Old Testament is, is mean, vengeful, hateful God. Jesus is a totally different God. We pitch the old, we take the new, and the old has nothing to do with the new. Marcion's heresy was battled by Ignatius and Arrhenius, and uh, so they put together probably the earliest uh, list of the the canonized books that we have uh, around 367 I think is the date for it but so that's the extrinsic model okay but we have a second the second model is what's called the intrinsic which means the canon would develop naturally and innately from what was already true of early Christianity and what the Christian already believed what he already knew about the old testament So one is pushing away from the Old Testament, like this is a new concept. The New Testament is a new concept. The Old Testament is an old concept. New is better, old is worse. Separates them. Extrinsic uh, model in some ways does that. (coughs) Forces these books that were never intended to become uh, uh, the gospel. Intrinsic says that the, the, the heart of men in the time of Christ, was longing and looking and expecting for God to enter into time, was looking for the completion of the things that were promised in the Old Testament. And so, when they saw that, it was natural that they would assume that there would be a new, uh, a, a new, new scripture. For example, uh, Old Testament the mosaic covenant god brings a deliverer for the children of israel moses takes the children of israel out of bondage what's the first thing they do after they get out of bondage they go to mount sinai what does god give he gives them a miracle of freedom and then he gives them new revelation right new revelation is the law the law comes down into into the life through moses then in moses life what does moses say one day God's going to send a prophet like me to you. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he, he, you need to listen to all the words he says. And if you don't listen to the words of that prophet, God's going to hold you accountable. If you don't listen to him. It's a future promise of another prophet. It's one of the initial prophecies regarding Messiah. The coming of Messiah. That's why uh, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Some say you're the prophet. Remember that phrase? Some say you're the prophet. That's the prophet promised in the book of Moses. Now, if there was to be a new covenant, as the prophets laid out the concept of the new covenant, then there would be another great work of redemption followed by another revelation, right? Pouring out of God's word on what was expected in the new covenant. So the anticipation is already in mankind as they await The event. It's uh, intrinsically. It's built in. It's something that's already happening within them. So let's talk about it. The eschatological nature of early Christianity. This is what I mean. Jews of the first century were waiting for God's deliverance in his kingdom. True or false? True. True. So they're waiting with expectancy. Who were the first authors of the Bible? Jews. Jews, right? So we got Jews waiting for God's deliverance in his kingdom. During the intertestamental period uh, where the majority of the Old Testament apocrypha is from, all of those apocryphal writings talk about waiting with expectancy for the coming of Messiah. Uh, What are those books? Tobit, 1st Baruch, uh, the testimony of Moses, 2nd Maccabees. Wow. Uh, The wisdom literature, Qumran literature, literature that was found in Qumran, all indicate having a posture Waiting for God's special inbreaking. So that just gives us an idea. What was the mindset of people at the time of Christ, right?
1: So the Jews that deny Christ, are they
0: still waiting? The Jews that deny Christ as their Messiah don't believe in a heavenly Messiah anymore. They believe in an earthly Messiah. A leader who will be able to give them peace on earth. Yeah, kind of plays into the hand of the bad guy but that's kind of that, where they are now it's a long way. yeah it's a long yeah for sure that's why the reality is less than 10% of Jewish people are believing Jews less than 10% most of them are more they're more atheists that are Jews than anything else so yeah they're born a Jew that doesn't help Listen to what the New Testament has to say in terms of what was the expectancy, okay, at the time of Christ. John one forty one. So he first found his brother Simon. So we're talking about Andrew, right? He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. So obviously when Jesus meets Andrew and Andrew goes and runs and tells his big brother, right? He goes and tells him and he says, hey... We have found the Messiah, which which intimates a search, doesn't it? We found the Messiah; he's here. Luke two thirty eight. We're talking about uh, Luke two thirty eight and Luke two twenty five. We're talking about Simeon and what's her name? Hannah, Hannah? is it Hannah? Hannah? Anna. Is that how you got named? After the prophet? Hmm. Our prophetess. So in coming in that instant, she gives thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. So when she saw the Christ child, remember, Anna sees the, the baby, same time as Simeon. We're going to see Simeon in a minute. Sees the baby. What does she do? She goes and tells this to all who looked or who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. So there shows an expectancy, right? An expectancy on the part of the people who lived at that time. God's going to do something. God's going to break in. God's going to enter into time. Verse 25, uh, Luke 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout. What was he doing? Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Expectancy. right? Expectancy. Expectancy. So this attitude of expectancy among the people. Acts eight. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him and said, Lord, will you at this time... Restore your kingdom. Expectancy, right? There's an expectancy that God's going to finish what was started in the Old Testament. So there's, there's an expectancy on the part of the people at that time that there's more to come. There's more revelation to come. So Jews of the period viewed the ending of the Old Testament as incomplete. N.T. right observes this, the great story of the Hebrew Scriptures was therefore inevitably read in the second temple period as a story in search of a conclusion. We are awaiting the king. We are awaiting the deliverer. We are awaiting the kingdom of God. We are awaiting the consolation of Israel. We are awaiting for the promises, right? So it's natural then to assume when they thought that those things were happening... Maybe they would write it down. No? Well, let's, let's continue. The earliest Christians believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of the foundational Old Testament promises about God's redemption of his people. All these anticipations the early Christians believed were realized in the coming of Jesus. Belief that God had already begun to fulfill those Old Testament promises... And his kingdom had broken into history in the person of Jesus Christ. So how does that affect the canon? If some second temple Jews became convinced in the story of the Old Testament. Had been completed in the life of Jesus. It is not unreasonable to see uh, the proper conclusion of the Old Testament might then be written. The story has been finished. Let's write What has taken place. Matthew is written as a continuation of a biblical story. If you go to the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles ends, uh, it ends with a genealogy. Matthew begins with a genealogy. One ends, one begins. The center of both, David, the son of David. Who is going to be the son of David? (coughs) We see that fulfillment laid out to us in the book of Matthew. God brings new word revelation after great acts of redemption. So a new word revelation interprets and applies the act of redemption. Moses delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, brought them to Sinai, gave them the law. Gave them what God expected, interpreting what God had done for the people, that he was calling them out as their own special people, right? With, uh, with their own concept and decision. They delivered the law. Jesus' redemption then delivers the final word, the finished word, according to the writer of Hebrews, right? Earliest Christians believe that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. So the Messianic age, uh, the Messianic age word brings new revelational message from Jesus. The new kingdom brings a new message. New kingdom New message. Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. I will raise up for you a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. That was a messianic promise. A fulfillment of that promise means a new message would come. We have then the concept of covenantal language. Covenantal language is everywhere in the New Testament, isn't it? The concept of the new covenant all over the place first corinthians eleven twenty five in the same manner he took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is what the new covenant of my blood, right This cup is the new covenant of my blood, so this do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me second corinthians three six very important scripture <clears throat> Paul writing says, "Who has made us sufficient, speaking of himself and the other apostles God, having made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Who were the ministers of the new covenant? Who was given the responsibility to write scripture? Who was given the responsibility to write to us the new word revelation after the great act of redemption of Jesus Christ? That was given to the apostles. First, to speak, go and tell, right? But at some point as an apostle, what are you going to realize? I'm telling and I'm telling and I'm telling, but I'm getting old. And everywhere I look, somebody's trying to kill me. So what do I do so that the word I'm trying to share as an eyewitness with others is shared? What am I going to do? Right, because I take oral, to take oral tradition and make it permanent, I write it down. I write it down and I give it out. I write it down and I give it out. Which will lead us to textual criticism in a couple of weeks, but the idea is certainly there. So who were the ministers of that? Who did God give a specific role to? Did he just randomly, was it just random people? No, who was it? It was the apostles. In order for a book to make the canon, it must have apostolic authority. That doesn't mean it has to be written by an apostle. It must have apostolic authority. It must speak for an apostle, share an apostle's message. It it is taking what the apostles taught and giving it to the people. That's why. So we, that's why I say they're self-authenticating. You look at them and you say, "Yes, this has apostolic authority. Look, this is message from Paul. This is from Peter. This is from James. Whatever. As we work our way through the Scripture, the apostles that God has laid out specifically, and we say, "Oh, yeah, these are the guys. These are the guys that God gave as gifts to the church, right? To lay." To lay out and nail down for us. The new covenant and the new word revelation. <clears throat> Hebrews 7.22. By so much more Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. All over the New Testament. All over the New Testament. The concept of there's a new covenant. New covenant. New covenant. New covenant. What's another way to say new covenant? It's right there at the very beginning of the New Testament. New Testament is the same thing. What is Old Testament? Old Covenant. What is New Testament? New Covenant. The old promised the coming of the new. The new was looked at expectantly. When it came, people were, were understanding that this is what we need to do. This is what God has called us to. So you have a close relationship between covenants and the written text. Um... Then there's, there's an incredible uh, um, <clears throat> example between extra-biblical Hittite treaties, covenant treaties, and, and how God put together the Bible. If God was going to express through, through new word, revelation, his expectancy in a covenant with his covenant people, he'd use a language they understood. And one of the languages that they understand was the, the way that they did covenants at that time. So how did they do covenants at that time? They had, covenants were publicly read. They read them before the people. What they do with scripture? They read it publicly, right? were publicly read. They had preamble prologue. They had a section in the covenant writings, the Hittite covenants and treaties, They had a section that said, if you break this treaty, this is the curse. If you fulfill this treaty, this is a blessing. This is the blessing, this is the cursing. Does that sound familiar? Same kind of a concept, right, that we see in Scripture. They also would have stored the treaties or the covenants in their holy shrines. Where did they keep the Bible? Where did they keep the Old Testament? In the temple. That's where they kept it. In the holy shrine. What else? They would have this language in them. If you change one piece of this, I'm gonna to add to you the cursings written about in this book. You know the first place that's written? Deuteronomy 4 2. You know the last place is written? Revelation, Revelation 22. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting, right? I'm just I'm not saying I'm just saying it's a pattern. The pattern was the pattern of the way that the, everybody was doing a covenant. When they made a covenant with somebody, this is what they would do. So when you have the old covenant and and, and multiple covenants, you have a Mosaic covenant, you have a Noah... Uh, how do you say the Noah one? Okay, Noah has a covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant. You have the Davidic covenant. Okay, moving on, moving on, moving on. And you have the new covenant. The new covenant is inaugurated by Jesus Christ. Hebrews tell us that you can't bring in a new covenant without the blood right without the blood so who was the blood that brought in the new covenant jesus blood that's what he told us right so you have this language all throughout the new testament the bible same structure same structure that i was telling you about deuteronomy 42 i have it here it says you shall not add to the word which i command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the lord your god which i command you so that's the language In the Old Testament, Exodus 24-7, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do. Just like what they were doing. 2 Kings 23-2, the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which has been found in the house of the Lord. This is the way they did things. Deuteronomy 4.13. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So the same covenantal language we have in the Old Testament, right? The the, the Old Testament, the same uh, uh, we have in the New. We have don't alter the text we talked about in Revelation 22. What about public reading? 1 Timothy 4.13. Till I come... Give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. What's he telling him? What's Paul telling Timothy? Read the scriptures. Read these letters out loud before the church. Revelation one three says, "Blessed is he who reads those who hear." So, in order to hear, how do you have to read it? Okay, so <clears throat> he who reads those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. For the time is near. We have the distinct covenantal authority for the apostles. We talked about 2 Corinthians 3.6. That God made us, Paul says, sufficient ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Um, The earliest Christians believed in the authority of the apostles. The earliest Christians believed that the apostles were speaking for Christ. 2 Peter 3 2. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of your Lord and Savior. He puts on the same level the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Same level, he says, hey. It's the same, Peter says, they're the same. If the apostles wrote this down, how would they see it? How would it be viewed? Second Thessalonians, probably one of the earliest books in the Bible. And as I said, the earliest uh, groupings of canonical books included all the Gospels, all four. Never, ever, ever is there a list of the four Gospels with any of the Apocryphal Gospels. Not one time. You would think if there was some confusion about which Gospels were the right ones, that occasionally you'd have the Gospel of Thomas snuck in there, right? With Matthew and Mark. But you don't. Not one time. You can have Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and John, or or Luke and, and Matthew, or all four of them together, but never once mixed in with any of the Apocryphal Gospels. So apparently... When they were putting those codexes together, they were already making a distinction, right? They're already saying, we can know that these things are different. You need to yell at somebody? Sorry, sunshine.
1: How come Mark is not called Peter? The Gospel of
0: Peter. Um, I'm probably going to get into that next time. But Mark is called Mark because he's the writer. And so the idea is like, um, well, let's get into it. So the idea is the Gospels, the names of the Gospels are kind of interesting so that we can really nail down what's being said. So if you say that, if you read it literally in the Greek, what it says is the one Gospel according to Mark. So in Mark's case, it's according to Mark. But even the early church fathers, they said that Mark's Gospel was Peter's record. So it, That's right. So it had, so it showed apostolic authority from Peter through John Mark. While John Mark still is an eyewitness, he wasn't one of the apostles, um, so he has apostolic authority through through the line of Peter, through Peter pointing down to him. Same thing with Luke and Paul, right? Because Luke basically had apostolic authority under Paul to write the book of Luke and Acts. And, uh... Yeah. So we get into it because. And when we, when we talk about some of the names, we'll talk about, I can't remember the word. There's a word for that? Ghostwriter. That's not the word. There's a bigger one. But uh, for that concept. So you pass it, it passes on. What's interesting, though, when you talk about Luke, because Luke and Acts are roughly accomplished near the same time. And they're always separated. Luke is always listed with the Gospels, and then there's a separation from the Gospels before Acts. Uh, so they don't put Luke and Acts next to each other, like part one, part two. You get what I'm saying? So, just interesting, just, just like we have it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we have Acts. And uh, so it's interesting how, they, how those things are, are kind of put together. <clears throat> uh, let's talk about, uh, let me see. Okay, so how was it viewed by people? 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Therefore, brethren... Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Whether by word. So how did the apostles initially teach? Orally, right? They taught orally. So when they say well, you were, whether you hold fast to the traditions, the things that we taught you, the doctrines that we gave you, whether by word when we taught you or epistle when we wrote you. Either way. Hold fast to those teachings. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3:14. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Do you think the apostles knew what they were writing? If they won't pay attention, if they're not going to listen to this epistle, note that person. Note that person. <clears throat> okay. The earliest book Paul wrote, 1 Thessalonians 2:13. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. So how did they receive the word of God orally, orally when they taught it? Right. You're receiving this word that God had bestowed upon the apostles when he said all authority has been given me heaven and earth. Who is he speaking to? He's talking to his apostles. He's talking to his disciples. He gives the same exact command to, to, to Paul. Right. Lord, what do I do? <laughs> so the idea, go, go. So he says, hey, <clears throat> he he lays out for him because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth. What the word of God. Do the books know what they are? Do they have the authority? Are they are they are they saying what they can't prove they are? Are we going to see the. The beauty, the majesty. Are we going to see the power and the ability to change lives? Are we going to see the attributes or the fingerprints of God on the books? Can we see the books, whether or not they'll authenticate themselves? They certainly claim it. So to say that the apostles don't know what they're writing, it doesn't really make sense, does it? Apostolic authority, 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or is spiritual... He should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul, what's Paul saying? The authority is in what he's writing. And if someone is really a prophet of God or a spiritual person, they will acknowledge that what he's writing is the word of God. If they don't acknowledge that what he's writing is the word of God, then they're not for real. That's pretty harsh stuff, right? 1 Corinthians Corinthians 14, 37-38. Luke says he's passing down apostolic tradition. He's passing down, he makes a claim to apostolic authority. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, uh, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke is saying, everything I got has come from the apostles, eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts put together in an orderly way, So that I can present this to Theophilus, lover of God. Then uh, the inspired prophecy of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. (laughs) (coughs) Pretty self-explanatory, right? Which God gave to him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to what? The word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, he who hears, and he who keeps the things written in this book. So John, when he's writing, does he know what he's writing? Yeah, I'm writing the words of God. I'm writing the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm being charged. Revelation is, like I said, among the earliest uh, papyri that are linked together in the corpuses and books. It's together with with other books linked together. So the apostles were seen as the voice of Christ and the written word as his word, God's word to us. These writings will be viewed as scripture immediately. They would not have to wait until the second, third, fourth, or fifth. Century to be affirmed by the church in order to be authoritative. They were authoritative as soon as they were written, as soon as they were given, as soon as they were put out. So the idea that there's no Bible until the 5th century and it's a construct of the church just doesn't fit with historical evidence of what's going on. Now you can say, I reject it, You're free to do that, but you can't tell me it wasn't wrote, and that's not how they saw it, and that's not how they received it, because that's everywhere. Yeah, when it was thought, (laughs) when (laughs) the Word was with God. So let's look at a, a few examples between the Old and New Testament. When God gave Revelation to Old Testament writers, he told them, write it down. Exodus 17:14, the Lord said to Moses, "Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I uh, will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Isaiah 38, it's a good one. Now go write it before them on a tablet, note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever. So when God gave a word to the prophets, when God gave the word he told them in the Old Testament, write it down. What'd they do? Wrote it down. Did he do something different in the New Testament? Revelation one eleven, Saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, first and the last. What you see, write in a book. Right? Send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Same kind of language, right? God says, here's the word, write it down. Luke 1, 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. In order to take oral tradition and make them permanent, what did you do with it? You wrote it down. You wrote it down. Jude 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints or what about John 20 remember the end of the gospel of John and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing you may have life in his name okay so what was the mission of the apostles get the gospel around the world for future generations how are they going to do that They're going to teach orally, and they're going to write it down. And the things that are written are going to be copied, and copied, and copied some more, and copied a few more times, and copied again, and copied so much that there's no other writing under heaven that has as much manuscript evidence as the Bible. Nothing else, even close. So I just want to talk Briefly, I'm going to cut you guys loose. If you've got questions, we'll talk some. I'm about a third of the way. So, the artifacts of the canon. We talked about the origin of the canon, the definition of the canon. Let's talk about the artifacts. Let's get into the texts a little bit. Quantity of early manuscripts that were being copied and used. We won't get into textual criticism yet. Just going to kind of talk about numbers. The New Testament. Sixty extant uh, manuscripts. We have sixty. Of the Gospel of John. That's the number one. Most copied. Most popular. Has eighteen. Matthew's right behind it with twelve. These are impressive numbers. If we compare them with all others. For example... Someone might have you believe that it's close, you know, that all the apocryphal things were just as popular, were being used just as much. They were being copied just as much. And it's just a random choice by the church that they didn't use the gospel of Peter. Or that they didn't use the gospel of Thomas. Or they didn't use the gospel of Mary. It was just political, right? Who was in power? They picked the four books. They come up with all kind of crazy ideals, <clears throat> the Gospel of Thomas, Mary, Peter, the Proto Evangelicum of James, all of those, the most, the Gospel with the most copies is Thomas. It has three. So we have four to one ratio for the four Gospels in terms of artifacts, the copies of manuscripts. Four to one for the four Gospels that are in the Bible. For every time we find a copy of for Matthews, you can find one copy of the Gospel of Thomas. Yes, sir? Okay, is it worth the time
1: to to sit down and read some of the proper
0: books? Uh, Yeah. Do you want a longer answer than that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so amazing, and you get this Adam and you get that Adam. And that. The, there is. Okay, so before you chose one, I would say go to the uh, early church fathers and look at the ones they're quoting. The Shepherd of Hermits, for example. There's some value historically, there's some value in terms of understanding the mindset of people based on what's written in that apocryphal book. Um, But when you look at the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas was utterly and completely and totally rejected by the early church fathers as utter heresy. So his gospel, like, he really wrote No, 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 no. It's the first copies we have are 2nd are and 3rd century. Thomas had been dead 100 years before that appeared. So, <clears throat> um, which is some of the challenges, right? But, the point is, the early church fathers, polycarp, 1st century guys, uh, who, who had knowledge of those things, there are some of those gospels that were what's called Gnostic gospels. A Gnostic gospel is basically Marcion's heresy. Uh, the God of the Old Testament is not the same God of the New. Um, among other things, I mean there's other things that differentiate different branches of Gnosticism but that's basically one of the big parts uh, of it. And so there were gospels that were written from that point of view. There were gospels that were written that said Jesus didn't leave footprints because he wasn't really flesh. He was just spirit. Um, that were spurious. That never had authority in the church, that never were quoted by early church fathers. And so uh, they probably don't have any value except to, to let us see what crazy things people would write in order to try to counterfeit what God was doing, which is not uncommon, right? The apocryphal books that, that do have value are the intertestamental. Uh, the Old Testament apocryphal books that were written, 1st 2nd Maccabees, uh, great read if you want to understand what's going on in the lives of Jewish people between Malachi and Matthew. What was happening in the battle and the fights uh, with uh, uh, with um, Antiochus Epiphanes and the and the Greeks and how the Romans got involved and all that stuff. That's covered in those two books. They're a great historical read. You get what I'm saying? Yep. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. A book's a book. A book is... You know, I, I don't know if a book is able to be Good or evil. It's just words on a page, right? Tells a story. So you look at them, some of them have value in terms of historical, and some of them don't really have any. So I'd look there, where early church fathers are quoting them. Yes, sir?
1: When you go to that, say that, though, isn't it? It's the authority. It goes back to the argument. That's your circular reasoning back down there at the bottom of that. And this is not authoritative of God. That's right. To be not authoritative. It's man's perspective of what happened, and it's written, as you often say, through the lenses of the writer rather than by the authority. By the word of
0: God. of God. That's right. So so like it's like reading Time magazine. I can learn something from Time Magazine about what's going on in Syria, but there's nothing in there from God. I can go to the Bible if I want something from him. You get what I'm saying? But there's, there can be some, uh, some benefit to some of that stuff historically. Um, okay, so early manuscript collections, codexes, books that are put together. So let's talk about gospel collection units. P-75, P-64, P-4, P-67 are all the same codex, have all four of the gospels together. We're talking about uh, second century manuscripts. So they already have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together. You guys with me? The Chester Beatty Papyri, P45, has all four Gospels and Acts. (laughs) Uh, There's an unsealed text, 0171. Unsealed means it's all capital letters. The unsealed text has Matthew and Luke together. There's P66, Gospel of John. Which has the, the title. Remember how I told you the title? It's the one gospel according to John. And that's how they title the gospel. So they all title it one gospel according to John. Or one gospel according to Mark. Or one gospel according to Matthew. One gospel according to Luke. They have the Pauline epistles together in books. P-46. P-46. Uh, middle of the second century. Has Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians. Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. But the beginning and the ending of that codex are missing. In other words, it's like you, they've got a book, and the front part is torn away, and the back part is torn away. So, Matthew and so the assumption is it may have, the assumption is it may have had all of Paul's epistles in it, but they're missing from the ones that were torn apart. But these codexes, the way they would do the codexes back then, the Gospels would be together, the general epistles would be together. The Pauline epistles would be together. And then Revelation. So wasn't very often that you found them all together. Until much later. But that's how they would separate it. Four parts of the New Testament. So, so that's how they would separate them when they were doing the, the corpuses or the codexes. Uh, P30 has 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. <clears throat> but they have high page numbers. So... There's page numbers written on the pages. You just have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Those aren't very long. So there's an indication that it was part of a bigger work. Somewhere in the middle of a bigger work. Uh, you have uh, P49 and P65. They have Ephesians and 1st Thessalonians. Both written in the same hand. Jackie, what does the P stand for? It's just the way that they mark the manuscript. So P stands for papyri. And then it has a number and an unsealed text, which is uh, a little bit different and written in all caps. It'll just be all numbers, like 0121. 1. So if it says P, it's a papyri, it's a part of a papyrus find in the, in the codex. And if it's all numbers, it's unsealed. <clears throat> uh, P92, Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians. Um, all of the titles of all the Pauline epistles. Indicate that there were many, many, many books written by Paul. Why? Well, how did they title the Gospels? The one Gospel according to who wrote it, right? How did they title Paul's? The letters. The, Paul's written, the letters written by Paul. To the addresser, yes. right? So they said to the Thessalonians, to Timothy, yes. to. So Paul's are all, why would they do that? Because if I said from Paul, from Paul, from Paul, from Paul, it would be getting kind of confusing, right? So they, they titled all of Paul's by the addressee, by the addressee, which would indicate, oh, it, I'm not saying it, it proves anything except that there were a lot of letters by Paul. but there was only one or two, they would have just said, This letter from Paul. This letter from Paul. But they named it by the addressees. They didn't normally do that. That's not normally how they titled them. And you certainly wouldn't have titled them the first letter too. Unless there was at least two. Right? So it indicates that there were more. In Revelation, we have copies of Revelation in P18, 47, 98, 115, and the unsealed text 0318. The general epistles... A number of those, that's James, Peter 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude, so we have a, a number of Pyri that have those as well so the, there's evidence artifacts dug up and found that, that put the fact that these weren't just random books floating out in space and in the 4th and 5th century a church council got together and started pulling random books out and putting them together the point is, they were already being put together earlier. Yes, sir. What's the unsealed text 0318 you just sure. is a unsealed text of all uh, capital letters, which is of uh, Revelation. The text of Revelation. So I think we have five total of Revelation. And we'll talk about some of that when we we'll get into textual criticism and what we do when they disagree. And don't freak out, because they do.
1: So there's only five copies of the book of Revelation in total?
0: Five extant, complete copies of Revelation. Then you have fragments. Corners, parts, pieces, here and there. Sometimes a whole chapter, sometimes a couple verses. Which all helps us. The more of those they find, the better it is, because the more of those they find, the more we're able to compare and contrast and see where, where if there was changes or if there wasn't, and and why they were, if there were. So the more of those that we get, the better off. But still you have, you have uh, an exorbitant amount above and beyond anything else from... Ancient literature at all. Homer's five, Iliad and Odyssey, even. They're Greek. And
1: they don't all agree, sir?
0: They don't all agree. Wow. Does that bother you? Yes. You have to wait two weeks? I still got to finish the canon. <laughs> we will talk about textual criticism. Sleepless nights. <laughs> Sleepless nights. I would say this. The, the fact that they don't agree should be expected. Amen. Should be expected. Because God didn't have a copy machine to use to make the copies. What did he have? You and me. And imperfect men, we do dumb stuff. And the majority of the differences are accounted for a scribe. Jumping from one letter on one line to a letter on another line and skipping a part of it because his eyes were tired. I don't, I don't have notes in front of me. There's names for all of them for the different kinds of mistakes. So the majority of the mistakes are, are mistakes like that, differences in spelling. Uh, um, and so all of those things can be understood just when we look at it. We go, oh, look, he he skipped. We can look at this text and we can see, oh, he bounced from this this, uh, um, you know, letter theta to this theta. ah oh, yeah. You know, he, was, he looked away, looked back, and went to the wrong line. And you can see it, and so you, you don't have to worry about it, because you can go, yeah, look, I have these copies, and so I can tell what's going on with them. But there are ones that that's not the, the issue. Sometimes it's real. Sometimes you've got a crazy issue. You're not going to like that one when we get there. But... We don't have to be afraid of those. We should just know. Here's what—that's why textual criticism. Textual criticism is a blessing to the church, because the more they dig up and the more they find, the more sure we become of what we have. And so, you know, we just long for them to find more and more. But the basic rule in textual criticism is put the longest reading down. The if it's there somewhere, put it in. Right. We don't want to take something out, so we leave it in. And then they put footnotes in your Bibles. You ever seen them? Foot, all those footnotes tell you there's a discrepancy somewhere in the text. And all the different letters that they put next to them, MT or, or um, there's, there's, different, there's different numbers for all of them, or letter designations, that they tell you what text it is as a difference. Uh, if you get a Greek New Testament, they actually have every single one of them in there. Well, all the ones that agree, all the ones that are different, sometimes, like I said, the difference is just they spell the, the name of the city different. You know, which is on a big dead Tom- Tomato or tomato, it's still the same thing, right? You know where we're getting. So the vast majority of the textual criticism comparisons are that. There are probably two and a half percent that are stuff that we have to get a little deeper into to figure out in the discrepancy where, where is it right, which one's right. But the more copies we have, the better we can do that, right? So, I, for the most part, we do that pretty well. So you don't have to worry. Okay. Your doctrine of the Trinity is going to be okay. Right. But 1 John 5, 7 might not survive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then you have to get the rest of that in a couple of, two weeks. So we'll, we'll start the, the basics of the self-authenticating model, and we'll finish that up. Uh, next week, we'll, I'll, I'll just lay all that out, the concepts, how, how it is. What do we use to, to say the books are self-authenticating? What are we looking for? How do we put it together to kind of nail down the concept of here's the 66 books and the 40 authors that we have and the evidence why I can say I can stand on this and I, I'm not going to surrender it no matter what somebody says. And if somebody says that's not till the 5th century, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say I was authoritative it David wrote Look at what the scripture says. It was authoritative the day it was wrote. Does that mean everybody always agreed? No. We don't all agree in this room, do we? I bet we don't. All we got to do is pick something controversial and we'll find out how many people disagree, won't we? So, that idea uh, we'll nail down and then when we get into textual criticism we'll bring back up the concepts of inerrancy uh, so that we can work through that definition as we work with the reality of what we have in the, the textual issues. Okay? Anybody got any questions about what we talked about today or worries or comments or so does Constantine get credit for bringing the canonization process together? Um, he just around he does get credit, but n- not very many people who really know what's going on give him credit. Okay. And you said in the Hebrew Bible Matthew is in it? No, uh, it ends in Chronicles with the genealogy and Matthew begins with the genealogy. So I'm just saying that the New Testament picks up the Old Testament lets off. Anybody else? Just get me out of here. Don't talk to me no more. see is pattern
1: to a Jew, right?
0: Yeah. And the Mormons say that when you, ask, when you tell them that uh, not to add any words to the Bible, no man should add any words, and they say, well, Joseph Smith wasn't a man, he was a prophet. That's their out on that one. Yeah, the problem is that the, the, New Test, the New Testament was closed at Revelation 22. So you're not to add or take away, no matter what. Uh, Paul said, even if I or, or an angel or anybody else gives you any other gospel... Let him be a curse and that from him. So, the idea that the Bible teaches is this: closed. Do we know we have books that have been lost? Yeah. The book of Jacob, sure. the book of Words, the book of... <coughs> There's things that we don't have. We know that Paul might have wrote as many as four books to the Corinthians. So what does it mean if we lost a book? It means God didn't want you to have that book. You didn't need it. Did it mean that book was not authoritative to the people it was given to no, but what it means is when Paul wrote that letter, that harsh letter to the Corinthians, that when it got to the Corinthians, it was for them, it was dealt with, it was finished, and it was lost. God, it didn't need to come to us, right? God is able to preserve the word he wants us to have, amen? amen. So if he brought it to us, we have what we need. So I would go uh, from the point of view that canons closed. When Revelation was, was, was put in the end, remember I told you they would end covenants, With the the blessing and the cursing, don't add, don't take away. This is the final words of the covenant. The writer of Hebrews said, God in times past spoke through the prophets, has in these last days, at the end of time, spoken to us by his Son. This is it. This is what we got. This is what he intended for us to have. Even if we dig up some incredible find, it may have uh, value in terms of, of history, it may shed light on something, but it won't be scripture. Because the only thing that has authority to be scripture is the word of God. And when I say the word of God has got to be self-authenticating, in order for the word of God to be self-authenticating, it has to be available to the church. And if it hasn't been available to the church for a thousand years, it's not from God. He didn't leave his church without a word. No matter what prophet says. So, Do we have an answer for the world? Didn't he say that our knowledge will increase in the end Sure. Daniel? Has your knowledge increased? You've got a smartphone in your pocket that does more than anybody did in the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, they made pyramids, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? So, in that sense, I mean, that's where I would take the concept that Daniel's talking about. Man will go to and fro across the earth. You know, we see that in the ability of man to travel, where it once took months and months, maybe a year. Now, a guy can do in a day, 24-hour period of time, pretty much to get anywhere you need to get to on the earth. So when he talks about knowledge increasing, I would say it's, it's our understanding or comprehension of what God's Word teaches, but not that something new in God's Word will. We're about knowledge increase
1: as in I can Google just about anything and I have, that, have the information right there yeah you just push a button
0: you go Google and say Google how do I little, what, does, <laughs> what what does this what does this mean what <laughs> does this mean yeah I have to use that all the time percuity what's purposecuity have you already addressed the, the
1: argument of time where a lot of people atheists and the other people who people going against the idea of theology wrestle with the time. You say this book was written approximately at this time, AD 64 for John, John wrote this time, this is not possible. The verbiage, the wording, the different things that are there. Is that something you've addressed or you're planning to? We haven't,
0: we haven't addressed that specifically. Um, the For the most part, the arguments that they bring up in terms of dating books and books of the Bible are um, always uh, uh, up for um I don't want to say negotiation, but working out details, because you you can find where an atheist will say, "Yeah, this isn't right." I mean, they used to say, for, "I'll pick an easy one." They used to say the the books of Moses couldn't have been written at the time that we say it was written because writing didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then they found the uh, what uh, the I lost the name it starts with an H. I thought. Hey, they found right. some a, a, a code of Hammurabi. Thank you. Did the H help you? So they found the Code of Hammurabi, which predates Moses and has a pretty extensive legal system written on stone. So as they find things, that the argument becomes less and less. But you know, people when people are looking for a reason to not want to have to hold on to it, they'll latch hold of whatever the last teaching was. It's another way we can look at knowledge increasing. Is you know, ten years ago they wrote these books and they were pretty sure that these books were absolutely true, but then. They found these other things, so they had to write new books. But if my information is taken from somewhere old, you know, I could go and I could say, uh, even if I wanted to take Bart Ehrman, who's a who's a, a pretty big antagonist uh, of the Bible, that's not true. Jesus didn't really exist, blah blah blah, and, and he's you know a relative expert in terms of, of Greek and manuscripts and so forth. Uh, even if I look at his early works, they don't agree with his late because new things are being added and, and information is coming to light. And the more information that comes to life, the more it shines on the validity of what the scriptures say as opposed to what man says. So sometimes we have to agree to disagree, you know, if there's not some emphatic proof, or we have to wait for something to pop up to say, oh, what you thought was true turns out not to be. But the point is, at least for me, I want to stand on what I believe to be concrete, and that would be God's word that God's word is right. And if we get to the point where God's word is not right, we should all pitch it. Because if it's wrong, then we got nothing. Satan won. Yeah. Eat, drink, and be merry. But so far, we don't have that. We have the word of God authoritative, right. We can stand on it. We can know it. And so we just hold fast to the truth of his word. Sound good? All right. Well, we can hang out and talk. If you've got questions, feel free to hit me up. And uh, we'll finish up the self authenticating model next week and the week after that, textual criticism. You're going to want to come. George, you don't want to miss that one. I don't Okay. So we'll want to talk about that. I I not George can? Yeah. Anybody can handle it. He's (laughs) going to cry. It's okay to cry. Those are some of the things. But there's, I mean, the reality is, The, the, the problem that the church did in terms of textual criticism is pretend it didn't exist. And then when people go to college and they find out it does, and then their faith gets upended and they bail because we didn't tell them the truth. So we tell them the truth. We don't have to be afraid of it. Textual criticism actually helps us. But we have to understand how that is, and that's what we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So it'll be okay. I promise it will be okay. I won't rob you of your faith. (laughs) I hope to establish it. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time we can uh, discuss these things, Lord, as we lay the foundation for our apologetic, Lord, that we can know that we can stand on this. This is true. I can always point to the Word of God. And if I share the Word of God with somebody, God, you declare that your Word will accomplish what it was sent to do, Lord. You'll work on a heart. You'll plant a seed. You'll Begin to upset the kingdom of darkness in someone's life so that you can translate them or transfer them into the, the kingdom of light, Lord, from darkness to light. Lord, we pray, God, that you would continue to equip us to do that very thing, Lord, that we could be ministers of your word, sharing the truth, uh, Lord God, and sharing it, understanding and knowing that we, uh, we have a firm foundation. Lord, we pray your blessing and your anointing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bless the Lord on my soul.